This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome again. My name is Patrice Petro. I'm here with Grail Marcus, um, author, music journalist, and cultural critic. We're here to discuss Julie Taymor's Across the Universe as part of our larger series on the Beatles this winter quarter. So to begin, um, Across the Universe, as I said at the opening, presents a parallel universe version of the 1960s in which the Beatles themselves are never directly referenced. Um, why do you think Taymor chose to do this, and what effect do you think it has? Well, I don't know why she chose to do anything, but I think the effect is... This sense that these songs are part of the time, almost like weather. Anyone can receive them at any moment, and these songs can kind of come down like um, angels or emanations and take possession of people for a moment, give them a voice. I've always thought that pop music is, is a language or a whole series of languages. And this is Beatle language. And all these people were kind of born knowing it and knowing how to speak it. And all these people can understand it when other people are speaking it. So these songs are in the air. I mean, that's a cliche in a way, but I really mean that, in the air in the sense that um, they don't have authors, they don't have originals. One of the things that struck me watching this tonight is that except for Bono and Eddie Izzard, playing Mr. Kite, Bono playing the Neil Cassidy bus driver. And, and these are two people who are really funny and who, who really bring out the humor and the, um, you know, kind of heroic ridiculousness of I Am the Walrus. God, what a wonderful song. Oh, yeah. it, it comes out the way he does it. Um, except for them... There are no really distinctive voices at all. The actors are doing their own singing, and most of the time they're singing live. It's not overdubbed later. A couple of scenes that it has to have been, but mostly, you know, the camera's on them and they're singing, and the, the music has been worked out beforehand. Um, but these are ordinary voices. You don't listen to Evan Rachel Wood. You don't listen to Jim Sturgis or any of the other people, the only musically distinctive thing is the guitar playing. Mm -hmm. In other words, anybody could be singing these songs. They have lost their... the sense of... uh, My God, I'm here. I'm able to listen to Paul McCartney or John Lennon or George Harrison... Uh, or or Ringo Starr singing and playing, and nobody could ever sing it better than this or even like this again. 
That's the feeling you got when uh, and almost any of these songs came off the radio when you played them yourself. But here, there, that's not there. These are these voices are ordinary. They're anonymous. They're not special. You're not overwhelmed by their virtuosity, the ability of the people to touch emotions that you've never been able to express yourself. That's not there. So the the sense of this music is ordinary language. That's what I found most thrilling. Yeah, that's great just to speak Beatle language. I, I like that. Um, you've written, um, and I quote, that the sum of the Beatles was greater than the parts, but the parts were so distinctive and attractive that the group itself could be all things to all people. You go on to say this is why the Beatles became bigger than Elvis. They seemed not only to symbolize, but to contain it all to make history by anticipating it. And that's the end of the quote. Could you say more about this, how the Beatles contain, anticipate, and made history? Well, Brian Epstein, their manager um, in Liverpool, when he was going around knocking on doors, trying to get record companies to give them an audition in 1961 and 1962, and he would say, they're going to be bigger than Elvis. And he was probably the 532nd rock and roll manager to say that, except he was the only one who turned out to be right. And I think it is because of that multiplicity. I, I, I think of a woman named Debbie Geller, who was, um, she was a music publisher she was a producer of music films. She produced one of the, if not the greatest, Beatle movie, which was directed by a man named Anthony Wall, uh, the Brian Epstein story, which is even longer than this movie, and has just extraordinary depth, and it's so painful and heartbreaking, not just at the end, but at the beginning. It shows... It, it, it draws very, very deeply from Brian Epstein's journals. And one of the things he wrote was that it had always been his dream to be at a Beatles show and stand in the back and just jump up and down and scream. That's what he really wanted to do. And he never did. Um, Debbie Geller produced that film. She was raised in a Reichian household. In other words, her parents were devotees of the uh, psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich, who, whose theories and whose treatment was so threatening and controversial and strange that the U.S. government seized his books, said that they were fraud, they're medical, medically fraudulent, actually had them all burned. He was sent to prison. But he had a strong group of devotees around them. And in, a, in essence, she grew up in a Reichian cult. And when she first went to school, she had been homeschooled until she was you know, um, in, in the seventh, eighth grade. 
She never heard the word religion. People said, what religion are you? She didn't know what the word meant. She, she, and so she was an outcast and people made fun of her and, and nobody would talk to her until finally in 1964 when the Beatles arrived and she was living in New York and the Beatles actually come to New York and every girl in her class is simply, who's yours? Who's yours? Is it John? Is it Paul? It's not going to be Ringo. You know, who's yours? Who's yours? And she said, George. George is mine. And she said it with such conviction that people suddenly realized, you know, she was a person. And she said, she was part of things. And, no, and she wrote, nobody ever made fun of me again because they could tell um, that I had made a choice, a deliberate choice. You got to choose. Um, and you got someone to identify with. And as I recall... And I had my favorite Beatle just like anybody else. People didn't switch. It wasn't George this year and Paul next year. You were, you know, you were in it. So in terms of, yeah, it's easy to say any group is bigger than the sum of its parts. But very few carry whole worlds and and very few find out so violently that they themselves are part of each of the other people. Paul, John, George, Ringo, they're all diminished on their own. They can't reach the heights. And there's a way in which in this movie these all these people who are singing these songs, um, they're solitary. They're apart. They all know that language, but they're not a group in the same way, even if they you know, perform on the, on the rooftop at the end. You've said that you're not interested in a song as it's framed in the songwriter's mind, or whatever the original intention was. Instead, you say... You're interested in what happens to the song when it's out there in the world and someone's singing it, someone's playing it, other people are responding to it. When asking about the difficulties of staying true to the decade and to the Beatles themselves, Julie Taymor herself said, we're not trying to do history, we're trying to do a musical. Um, so it seems that Taymor is deliberately removing songs from their original context and reimagining them. I'm wondering which reimagined songs in the film struck you as the most successful and perhaps as the least successful? Well, I think, first of all, I don't, I don't think she does remove these songs from their context. I think she weaves them into their context, um, many yeah. contexts, in an extraordinarily powerful way. I, I think the most striking is, and maybe it's obvious, I don't know, mm. is... Um, is Max walking into the induction center 
and the Uncle Sam posters coming to life and saying, I want you, which is what Uncle Sam posters said in, in the First World War. I want you, with a pointed finger. And so this song, I Want You, She's So Heavy, is such an overwhelming, trudging, heavy, burdened piece of music. And I just couldn't get over the way all the masked soldiers look like Woody Harrelson. <laughs> um, you know, a hundred Woody Harrelsons. What a, what a, what a terrifying prospect. Um, I think that was the most, I don't know if it's the most successful, it struck me as absolutely audacious. And like I said, obvious, and yet it goes past the realm of the obvious to that extraordinary scene where the, where the recruits are still in their uh, underwear carrying this awful, enormous Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. through the jungles of Vietnam. It's like, you know, the the absurdity, the self-destruction, the self-destruction of America taking place in that war, to say nothing of the destruction of Vietnam, that, you know, that's a fever dream. Yeah. And I don't know where she got that, but what I was going to say about removing songs from their context. She has built all through the movie a kind of um, ladder of physical violence that ultimately explodes in the demonstration Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. They say it's at the Pentagon, except you're looking at the Lincoln Memorial. I don't know if that means, you know, don't have to worry about that. But at the very beginning, when um, the cheerleaders are doing their routine, and you see football players' bodies just flying through the air in their practice in a way that never happens in actual football practice. But it's tremendously kinetic, and it doesn't seem violent. And the scene in the, in the bowling alley with all of its physical action, maybe doesn't seem violent. Um, But by the time you get to the induction center, when people are being, are running a gauntlet, and then the first demonstrations. And so, again and again and again, you're being, you're being introduced to something that starts out, um, with, with no meaning, and ultimately has the meaning of, of everything. You know, this is life or death. Um, and that's built through the, all through the movie. And the songs are accompanying that and saying, you know, this song can attach itself, I want to hold your hand, as Prudence sings it. Never imagined that as soul music, but that's what... She, she makes it, um, building up and building up and building up until you realize this has all been one story. So that's why the Beatles aren't needed in this movie. That's why they're, in a way, not even the authors of the songs 
as they play in the movie. I think you're right about the, the way that she kind of really puts the songs into context, and sometimes in uncanny ways, like the induction uh, sequence you were just talking about, which kind of replays the bowling alley. Only It's got the same as they're moving through space, yeah, only yeah. one is play and the other is destiny. Um, but for me, watching it, and with our, our, our group of doctoral students, for me, this, the, the number, maybe it's just where I'm at in time and space, but um, is the Let It Be number sung by the gospel singer, singer Carol Woods. It's so powerful. It, it, it starts you know, with these different voices in Detroit and riots, but when the, just the sheer rage and anger, and I've never heard Let It Be in that kind of register. I wonder what you think of that number. I've never liked the song, and I didn't like it then. Hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't like the sentiment. I don't think you can let it be. Hmm. And, the, and the more loudly or um, stylized the, the performance, the more it grates on me and makes me angry. I hear you, um, but I didn't feel that way at all. I mean, I, I, I would say, like you said, the song, and it's through different iterations, but seeing it over the backdrop, and, it, and it's at that pivotal moment as it's JoJo's story that's introduced and what motivates him to go to New York. And I missed it at first because of all of the different activity because it's juxtaposing both the funeral for the fallen soldier in this leafy Ohio um, Midwestern locale and then we're on the streets of Detroit. And so to me, it was t- listening to Let It Be as rage. That, I mean, that, a sheer rage. Um, but we could move on. The Dear Prudence, of course, um, Roger Ebert famously, he loved uh, Dear Prudence. Um, he loved Prudence, and he loved her singing, I Want to Hold Your Hand, saying that um, in his review. He said, I always thought it was a, a kind of naive, upbeat song. Uh, but here, like you said, it is full of longing and pain and so on. Yeah, I mean, I mean so often when, when Jim Sturgis is, is singing and he's got this basically John Lennon voice with a little bit of Paul McCartney in it, he's, he is the, the least abstracted from the Beatles of all the performers, I think. Um, yes. I forgot what I was going to say. What were you saying? I was saying about, um, well, now I've forgotten. We'll have to play it back. Oh, terrible. Did the audience remember? About her singing, yeah. And then, of course, I love that she finally meets her contortionist. Yeah, um, when Jim Sturgis is singing, he really is imitating or following, let's say, John Lennon. He doesn't... He doesn't transform these songs at all. He makes them maybe more wistful and more sensitive and more sappy to a degree. Um, but And I thought there was going to be more transformative performances after hearing I Want to Hold Your Hand. I mean, I think I Want to Hold Your Hand is a great, I don't know if it's a great song, but it's a great record. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, it's exciting, and it's just big, and it gets bigger and bigger. Bob Dylan loved that song because he thought, my love I can't hide was really my love I get high. That really <laughs> excited him. Um, Bob Dylan was re-singing these songs just like the characters. 
in the movie. Um, I thought there was going to be more of that, and maybe it was good that there wasn't, because if, if Julie Tamer had tried to make every song radically different, to show that she could be their author in a way, mm -hmm. I think it would have gotten cloying very quickly. Well, just to, I, we spoke a little bit about this earlier, just over dinner. But um, I wonder what you think about. I mean, first of all, the the Liverpool that's presented here, the Liverpool. Many, it's oftentimes the streets. It's a city, but you know, we, it's the dockyards that we see as populated, and it's you know very um, oldy English, horrible. You know, nowhere to go. It's working class culture writ large, as opposed to nearly all the other locations in the U.S. So what, is, what do you think of how appropriating, taking these songs from a British band for an American story, how does that change their meaning? Or does it not? It's just that, like at the rooftop sequence with Let It Be at the end, and we're in New York, and we're, we're not in London anymore. I mean, it's echoing things, but it's all part of an American tradition. I wondered what you have to say about that. Well, yeah, England doesn't exist. But but remember, um, you know, except for um, except for Jim Sturges' character. But okay, you know, it's America. We we could have made this movie in Thailand. Um, if they had made this movie, it set it in England, and again had no Beatles and just ordinary people singing these songs and having these songs allow them to express what they feel or even telling them what they feel that they don't know, the transformation that took place in England with and because of the Beatles was maybe more intense, more dramatic, more shocking than it was here. But you also have a different kind of history being made here. It's much more intense. It's much more violent. We were in a war. England was not. Um, we were what everybody aspired to. Everyone wanted to, wanted to come to America. You know, the Beatles wanted, wanted, were in a way imaginary Americans in their own minds. Um, there was more history to work with here. I mean, I think if G Julie Tamer had tried to set this story in England over the same period of time, we'd just get real tired of Carnaby Street. <laughs> so, you know, there was more at stake here. I mean, and the way, and, and there's something odd, too. I was talking about this, all these uh, scenes of physical action, which to me match each other step by step until you get to the explosion of violence at the Pentagon. At the very beginning, at the riot in Detroit, you're seeing violence far more horrible than anything that will happen later. That because essentially you're looking at a white story. There are enough yes. um, African-American actors to you know, give you this sense of a polyglot uh, counterculture, but it's it's in a way it's sanitized. There there are more black people in these 
assemblages than there actually were. So right at the beginning, you find out that there, there's two Americas, and we're essentially only going to be telling you the story of one America, what happens to nice suburban kids. Um, and, you know, that, that, that scene of, of a man just being shot down, being shot dead um, on purpose, you know, not in some random firing by the National Guard, uh, that's just horrible, and it goes away. It goes away. So I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of odd stuff in this movie that doesn't fit, and I think that's part of what makes it powerful. It's not smooth. Um, yeah, there's the freeze frame on, frame on Evan Rachel Wood and at the end of the movie, and that's kind of corny. But she slips out of that most of the time. Well, of course, the film was produced during the Iraq War, and um, as in fact, as they shot a protest scene in New York City, people on the street joined the cast and crew because they thought it was a demonstration against the Iraq War. Um, so what kind of resonances do you, do you see between the characters in this film, um, the young activists of the 1960s, of, of which you were one, and young people today. Julie Taymor said she really wanted to make this film not just to bring the Beatles' music to a new generation, I think it is an American idiom, but to show the connections between now 11 years ago and in the 60s. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I was there. I lived through all that. I took part in that. I, I saw it at a distance of no distance. Um, and all I could really think of is why did this happen then? Because the mass movements, the political mass movements, whether they were small, whether they were enormous, whether they were local, whether they were national, built in intensity and desperation and vehemence and hysteria, God knows how many people just never slept through that period because they couldn't sleep, because waking nightmares of what was going to happen to the country, what was already happening to the country, what the country was doing in Vietnam. Um, why did this happen? Was it because there was a sense of economic security and so people had the freedom to risk their futures because they were sure that their future would be there? This was a period of great economic prosperity all through the 50s and all through the 60s. The amount of money that was running through the economy is just shocking today. The, I mean, you know, as a music critic starting out in 68, 69, what record companies would send people in order to get your attention, they would send you four copies of an album week by week. The waste, the promotion, the parties they had just in the music business. Nothing like that happens today. Um, there was just all this money and nobody knew what to do with it. 
Did the, is, is that why people were in the streets? Is that why people were risking their, their skulls if nothing else? Because it, it was anomalous. It didn't happen in the 30s. It didn't happen in the 20s. Nothing like that happened at that time. There were strikes. There was strikes by organized labor, and they were often violent, and people were often killed. But they involved members of a union, a specific group with specific demands, as opposed to anybody, which is what you're looking at here, and what it was actually like. So this thing happened then. People say, why isn't it happening now? You know, look at what's going on with this country. Why aren't there people in the streets about this outrage or that outrage? As if this is a normal American thing that happens whenever something is deeply troubling. It isn't normal. It was really odd. And looking back now, I'm, I'm just stunned that it that it did happen. I wonder if people, you know, who weren't born, maybe whose parents weren't born, when these events that are portrayed in the movie took place, um, if it looks like science fiction. I don't know. We might find out. Yeah. Um, and so uh, just to follow on from this, obviously there's uh, you know, references, the film is built around real-world historical events and groups and people, including the Weather Underground, allusions to Timothy Leary. I like it's not the SDS, it's the Students for Democratic Reform. Right. Which is, um, what a lame name. I, that's what I thought. That, uh, but um, what, are there important historical events or contexts or people that you think are omitted from this story that she's telling? Well, sure. I mean, that are important to you, that you would say... That didn't quite ring true, or no? It, it it didn't bother me. I mean, it's a, it's it's a selection. It's it's her version. You know, didn't didn't bother me that they show Columbia, not Berkeley. You know, I, I don't care. Right. Um, no, not at all. Um, sure, all kinds of things were omitted, and when she gets close to something real, and and tweaks it just a little bit. It's so obvious that it kind of hurts. Dr. Geary instead of yeah. Dr. Leary. Yeah. The Cafe Huh instead of the Cafe Wah. I mean, just do it. Or call it, you know, Cafe Grapefruit or, you know, right. whatever. Right. Um, we, we didn't, I, I realized that even though we didn't agree on the numbers that we liked the most, I asked, I thought, which one did you think were the weakest? Or let me ask it a different way. There's uh, famous cameos, Joe Cocker, um, Eddie Izzard, Bono, you mentioned these. Um, so which do you think are really successful and others not so much for you as, as performances? I think, you know, almost all the songs sung by Jim Sturgis in a really wistful mode, I, they weren't bad. But there was really nothing there. Um, the the songs that struck me as as telling me something about the songs I didn't know or had never heard before were again Bono singing um, "I Am the Walrus." God, I mean, just the pleasure he takes in it. 
Just imagine how fun it is to sing that song and to say, I am the walrus, and to believe it, and you know, to get other people to believe it. That's a tremendous song, and it's so free, it's so open. And the other one was um, Strawberry Fields Together, that, uh, Forever. That may be the most ambitious sequence in the whole movie, when, um, when Jude is creating this work of art with strawberries that, you know, obviously symbolize blood and death and then, you know, actually turn into bombs and he ends up destroying his own work. I'm not sure that does work at all. Um, As an idea, as a performance, but Strawberry Fields Forever, as it is moving in the background and then into the foreground of that whole sequence. Again, what an audacious piece of music. It, it has deep abstraction, and it also has a, 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 a tremendous forward movement. You know, one of the first songs in the movie is It Won't Be Long, and it's sung with just breakthrough energy and you realize what a perfect pop song that is. Mm-hmm. What a great piece of writing that is, to take something that it is immediately accessible but put more into it than songs are, than, than you're used to having a song carry. More urgency, more demand. Um, and it's all in the melody and the way it's sung, it's not the words. Um, and the same thing happens with Strawberry Fields forever. And I, I just sat back in awe at, at this piece of music and that it, um, it could be done by somebody else in a different way, not that different, and just say, okay, this is serious. This matters. There's something at stake here. There's jeopardy. The music says that in that sequence more than I think the uh, the visuals, the dramatization. To circle back to another thing we were talking about when you said this is really a story about, you know, the formation of this white couple, as many stories, American stories, as they converge on New York at a certain period of time, uh, from Detroit or from Ohio or whatever, and they come there. Um, uh, much like Elvis and other white performers, the Beatles have, have been criticizing for appropriating black culture. They have great, re- John has some great retorts to that. You know, we weren't appropriating it, we were loving it. Um, but what does this film seem to make of the Beatles' music and its relationship to African American music? Why the inclusion of JoJo and we have these kind of stand ins for Janis Joplin and, and for Jimi Hendrix? Just t- want to hear your thoughts about that. Well, you know. I think that's the, those are the weakest parts of the movie, again, because it, they're so obvious. Mm. We've, we've already seen that. We've already been told about that. Um, we don't need somebody acting that out again. If the guitar playing weren't so good, if it didn't have so much depth, um, you would be less interested in JoJo. Um, and... Sadie, you know, she, she does the Janis Joplin imitation uh, to death. When she starts out with, why don't 
we do it in the road, I thought, why didn't Janice sing that? Perfect, you know? She should have done that. Mm-hmm. And, and after a while, it's like, um, you, you just sing something beaten to death. And, um, but, you know, they have physical presence. I mean, I just, and, and, you know, think about Evan Rachel Wood. Evan Rachel Wood can be a very scary actress. She can go dark. She can make you worry what her motives are, how far she's going to go. If you've seen her in Mildred Pierce, the Todd Haynes um, two-part movie, um, she's just terrifying. And the role was made for that kind of a... Yeah, but she absolutely rises to mm-hmm. it. And, and she's, she is so brilliant, her character is so brilliant, that she's almost inhuman. And she goes all the way for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. And, and here she's Miss Sunshine. And she didn't need to be. You know? But that's, that's what the movie was. It was sweet romance. I don't object to any of that. You know, I'm a sucker for that. Well, with that said, please join me in thanking Grail Marcus for being with us tonight. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.